Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Okay, uh, Ilona Levine, welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe. Thanks for having me. I guess we should uh, mention that we connected to Ilona through Andrew Ting. Andrew Ting happens to be the general counsel for the company I work for, and Alona is also a general counsel, which we'll talk about here as we get going. And Alona, you've got about an hour you can spend with us? Sure. Okay, awesome. Okay. So Alona, I grew up in Virginia. I've known Virginia, the East Coast of the United States, my entire life. I've never uh, moved to a different country that speaks a different language. You did not grow up in the States. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Moldova, which is a small country. When I say Moldova, nobody knows what I'm talking about, unless you know geography really well, but it's, it's really small. It's probably the size of New Jersey. Um, it's the country between Romania and Ukraine, so it's landlocked. Um, former Soviet Union. And was the Soviet Union uh, kind of disbanding at the time that you were growing up? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, yeah, so I was born and I think I was about 13 uh, when the Soviet Union fell apart. So I was born during the Soviet Union regime um, and grew up kind of seeing that um, regime and that culture. And then I also saw the transition from the Soviet Union um, that fell apart and then transitioned to the independent republics so independent countries. Um, an interesting fact too is I went to law school right after uh, high school, and that was during the time when our this new country um, was setting up all of its laws and the constitution. So I was in law school studying constitution that didn't exist <laughs> as the parliament was drafting the new constitution and new laws. So it was an uh, interesting time. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing! Um, what a, what a cool time to be to be in law school. I know that, so Ukraine, I've heard is kind of, uh, there's an East and a West and, and uh, a lot of the people in the East are kind of identify more with, with like being Russian ethnically and culturally. And in the West, it's more, they wanna be more part of the Western Europe club. Is, is there a, like, wh where would you say Moldova lies uh, in that kind of spectrum? Um, yeah, so I would say, um, you have also two camps, but one is more, or at least when I lived there, one was the camp that wanted to be identified with Russia and spoke Russian language and adopted Russian culture, right? Because of immigration from kind of Russia to Republic of Moldova. And then you had other people that were in the camp of Romania and they wanted to be Romanian and they spoke Romanian and so you had, and you had some people that spoke both languages. Um, I only speak one, well, I speak two, <laughs> one barely now <laughs> English, I'm just joking. Um, but at that time I, um, I spoke only Russian. My, my mom spoke Russian and my dad spoke both Romanian and Russian. But yeah, to answer your question, I think it was more of like Russian versus Romanian. Wow, cool. And then in the midst of it, like instead of basically joining one country or the other, there Moldova was like creating their own independent government, independent constitution and everything. Yep. Yep. That's really cool. Paul, uh, I think you're muted. Apologies, guys. I, I, I was interrupted by one of my children who wanted to correct the record. I was born in Germany. She wanted to make sure I made that. Point. There you go. Uh, but but I'm not German. I'm, I was an American born in Germany. Anyway, uh, so you lived under the Soviet Union for the first 13 years and then about six years uh, as an independent state that was trying to become uh, a, a solidly sovereign uh, state. Was quality of life better under the Soviet Union or was it better under a burgeoning uh, country? Um, yeah, that great question as well. So my recollection was that we were always poor and we were always in, in, um, in need of something. So, um, well, maybe under Soviet Union, it was a little different, but I was so little. What my memories are, um, are of constant empty shelves in the grocery stores and long lines for food, um, and lack of electricity, definitely lack of hot 
water um, so you don't just take get to take a shower, but you need to boil water to bring the hot boiling water to mix with cold water in the bathtub so you can take a bath. Um, you don't take an elevator. Uh, we lived on the 15th floor, so you don't take an elevator because you're afraid you're gonna get stuck in the elevator and then nobody comes to get you for hours. So you kind of choose what's the, what's the, what's the best um, at that time, whether you wanna, you're too tired to climb up on the 15th floor or you, and you wanna take a chance and get stuck in the elevator because the electricity will get cut off. Um, or, you know, or you really want to make it home for sure. So you do take the stairs. So there are plenty of times when, you know, I would, I would just take stairs um, because the alternative is to get stuck in the elevator. And the elevators were sometimes not very clean. Most of the times not very clean. Um, and um, so, you know, there was always that um, kind of the, the, the need for something, right? Either it's food or electricity, or hot water or warmth during winters. Um, and um, I remember times when I had one pair of jeans and I was, you know, a teenager growing. Um, and you try to not eat too little, which was difficult to do because there wasn't much food, or you don't eat too much if you have some food to eat because you're worried that you're gonna gain too much weight or lose too much weight and then that one pair of jeans will no longer fit. So clothing, you know, some basics, right? The necessities that we take for granted here were, were not there. Um, so it, it, I don't remember changing much when you had that changeover. Um, if anything, probably got worse because then you, you kind of lose the support of, you know, of a very big country. Um, and what I, I was 15 and what I decided to do, um, I, I took classical dance all through my childhood. And so I said to my mom, um, we need to have, we need to make some money and the way, and that was the only, I guess, good thing from what I recall in that change of regime is that it gave you that freedom to be you know, capitalist, right, to, to have your own business or to make your own money. Um, so that was unheard of during Soviet, Soviet Union. Um, so what I ended up uh, doing was um, going around and putting flyers everywhere, telling people that I'm looking to teach dance to little kids. Um, so I had flyers and I remember my mom and I went and it was in the middle of that winter, freezing cold outside. Um, and we were using this glue, trying to glue these flyers all over and the glue would go all over my hands and freezing. And, you know, and, and I kept thinking, I just hope that I'll get one child to come so I can teach that child uh, classical dance so I can make some money. Um, I ended up getting a number of kids um, in the first few months. And then as, you know, I, I really liked it and I think it showed and I was good at it. And so as my business was growing, I kept getting more and more kids in my, my school. So by the time I left, um, I had 150 kids uh, oh, wow. enrolled in my, in my school where I was teaching them classical dance. Um, I can keep talking about what I also did during that time, but you let me know. No, no, I, I Classical dance, are we talking about ballet? Yeah, ballet. Okay, so ba ballet in the classic sense, uh, the tutu on your toes. What, what's that move called when you're on your toes? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you, you just did it, okay. So you, yeah. you became good enough that you were, you were training 150 students. That's incredible. Yeah, and I was taking, so the other good part about growing up in Soviet Union is you had kind of sports, available to everyone, right? And, and, you know, I think about that and I don't know if I'm right or wrong, um, but I think about that a lot, right? Because here I have two kids and both of them, I, you know, I, I made sure that they participated in, in sports, but it's expensive. And why was Soviet Union so good in sports? Well, because it was free to people and anybody can try a number of different sports and pick a sport and kind of get good at it, right? Because you had a much bigger pool of people, of kids trying different sports. And so you kind of have, you know, uh, uh, your pick of who is good. 
And I think that's how you kind of have a much bigger pool you can pick from and then train. Um, so I tried different activities growing up and one of them that I really liked was dance. And so I ended up you know, doing, going to dance school for, for a very long time before I decided that that was gonna be my business. And really the business was not um, because I wanted to have a business because I was also going to law school at that time. It was only because I wanted to make money. So you were going to law school and teaching over a hundred students. Every, yeah, every so week. I started in high school um, and kind of built up my my business through the last few years of high school. And then um, in Soviet Union, you have, or I'm sorry, in Moldova, you had an opportunity to sit for the entrance exams right after high school to law school. And if you pass your entrance exams um, with a high enough score, it's very competitive. Um, you you can go to law school and then bypass the college. Um, years so that's what I did and I also remember that and you know I can also talk about the work ethic uh, that you kind of develop right out of necessity at times but um, I remember studying for this entrance exams because I was thinking to myself and studying really hard for hours for hours and hours I literally had no life for three months sitting in one tiny room just studying for this entrance exam exams because I knew if I don't do well and I don't get into law school then I was extending the time I have to study um, because my end goal was to become a lawyer so um, I didn't want to do also college and then law school so studying a lot and um, ended up getting high enough scores to get in uh, um, and my class in law school um, was I think 98 men and three women so it was very male dominated um, it, it was still a male dominated profession back then in, in Russia in Moldova so in, in America, you graduate high school typically around the age of 18, yeah. uh, and then you go to four years of college. And if you want to be a lawyer, then you can do three years of law school after that. So it's seven years of law school. Uh, you had your law degree by the age of 19. So I, I didn't get my law degree because I immigrated, but that was the kind of uh, the trajectory. So I graduated from high school at 17. Um, so started my business around 16, um, graduated from high school at around 17 and started um, law school while continuing with the business um, so we can have some money and buy food uh, while I was going to law school. Um, the other kind of the, the other good part, right, was that that education was free uh, and they would pay you uh, also. So I was making, if you have good enough grades, so I was also making uh, money kind of going to law school. But we, the law school and my business were in two different parts of the um, of the city and there was no electricity and there were no buses um, at times. And so I would walk for miles to law school during the day. And then I would walk back uh, all the way to my business so I can teach kids um, dance. And so by the time I'd get home, I'd be completely exhausted because it was a lot of walking around for miles. Um, and if you're lucky enough to get on the bus, you know, you don't know, it'll break down, right? Because infrastructure is so old. And um, um, so that was, that was also really, really difficult because you really just, you are so driven and you're determined, um, but there are all these obstacles that are in your way that you have to also get through. How many kids did you graduate high school with? Uh, I actually don't remember. It wasn't a big class. Well, where I'm headed is how many kids actually skipped college and went straight to law school <laughs> out of your graduating class? Um, I don't know. That's a good question, too. You know, I think so. This is something funny. Um, I have very big recollection of certain things, and it's not because my memory is bad, but sometimes because I have so much that I stuff in my, my brain all the time that certain things escape me. So I honestly don't, I don't remember. But I, I imagine you were the exception, not the rule, skipping college. Uh, your words, not mine, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate your humility. So you were 19, though, when you came to the States, right? Yes, I was uh, 19, almost 20. Mm-hmm. And you had done two years of law school by that point? Yeah, three years. It's a four-year degree. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So that's why you didn't finish. You did three, but didn't quite get to the fourth year. And I think when we spoke earlier, you did two years in Moldova and then a year in Moscow. 
No, mm -mm, all in Moldova. So it was three years of, uh, of law school in Moldova. So, so I don't know what's going on. I don't have too much in my head. Alone. <laughs> I, I just have a faulty memory, I guess. <laughs> it's all right. I actually have never been to Moscow. I really want to go, but um, I've been to St. Petersburg. Actually, this is the funny um, fact, Danielle, you asked me about growing up and during the collapse of the Soviet Union. So we went to St. Petersburg, I think I was about 13, for a summer trip, for school trip. And it was just our teacher and our whatever that, that was sixth grade or whatever that was, right, at 13. And we were in St. Petersburg um, and it was in June and it was during Yeltsin and the whole collapse that happened in June of that 1993 uh, or whatever it was, 1990. I, I can't remember the exact year, but it was during that period. And I remember our teachers thinking we're never gonna get back to Moldova because it was such a, you know, it was such a collapse and such an event that we were worried whether we'd be allowed to leave St. Petersburg and go back to, back to Moldova. But you were able to get back. Yes. So what led you, and I think I, I'm going to want to come back to Moldova, but what, what brought you to the States? Um, so I was um, in school with a boy that apparently really liked me. And he immigrated uh, when he was about 16. And um, he reached out to me at about 18 or so and wrote me a letter saying that he remembers me and he wants to see if I'd be interested in getting to know him. And so we started, and obviously I did remember him um, because we went to school together. And so we started talking, um, sending letters that was in, in time of letters, not emails, <laughs> no text messages, no WhatsApps, no FaceTimes. It was just good old letters. And so, you know, you, you kind of build that up, right? You wait for the letter and then you get the letter and you're so excited. Um, and then you send another letter and it takes another three weeks. So we corresponded for about a, a year and then he came to see me and then I came to see him. And then I went back and finished another year of law school while we were talking about getting married. And so I came here um, in 1996 and we ended up getting married. Okay, cool. That's a, uh, that's a hardcore long distance relationship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it, it, like I said, I, I knew him very well. He knew me very well, but yeah, it was, it was a long distance relationship. And I think one of the things that is interesting too, is that, you know, faith and how, things work out sometimes without even you know planning for them but yeah so he remembered me he reached out but people weren't getting visas from the united states embassy in moldova um and for simple reasons so even if you had somebody to go and see in the united states do it because united states was very worried that people were going to come and stay um so you really had to show what's going to bring you back to Moldova, right? What is, what is, why, how do we know that you'll be back? And a lot of people couldn't show that. And so they were getting rejected and they weren't getting visas and they couldn't come and, and they couldn't travel. So travel is very restricted. So another thing that we kind of take for granted in this country is that freedom of travel. Um, so I went in the first time to try and get a visa and I got the visa and it was almost like winning a lottery. And I think I was, you know, I was 19, I was in law school, I had my own business. So I had enough proof that I'll be back and I was back. Um, but it's interesting how things, how things work out at times. But, but you eventually came back to the States and stayed. How old were you when you stayed? Yeah, so I was almost 20, I was 19. And the reason why I went back the second time was because we already had plans to get married and and uh, for me to immigrate. But I came by myself uh, with um, $50 in my pocket because I had, you know, we had no money. So I think we sold um, my mom's piano so we can, so I can have at least some cash in, in my pocket landing here. Um, and again, we knew the family of my ex-husband, but it, you know, we weren't close. So you didn't really know what if they don't meet you in the airport. So I had to have a little cash in my pocket. Um, but they were fantastic. They, you know, they, again, we were 19, both of us, and we had to work really hard because they were recent immigrants themselves. They were here only three or four years at that time. And so they had no money. We had no money. And so both of us had to really work for everything that we 
God and what we had, right? And so we all lived in two-bedroom apartment, I think six or seven of us, and, and going through the immigration. And um, I wanted to go to college because I wanted to continue my law school education, but I couldn't get into law school because I skipped college. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to reapply and get into college and I couldn't speak English. Um, you know, one, one, one memory I always kind of resort to is, is thinking of immigration as being a, like an adult, a baby in an adult body. Right? So it's almost 20 year old, but I'm a baby because I can't speak. I can't, you know, it, the, the smells are different. The country is different. The sounds are different. The, 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 even crossing the intersection is different. <laughs> Everything is different. So it's like you're took from a different country in adult body and dropped in a new country and you're a brand new baby. Um, you had a question or I can continue. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, how did you learn English? Yeah, so it was a lot of uh, taking English as second language classes in local high school and just reading nonstop and just, you know, working from the first moment I landed here. Knock on wood, um, I've been here almost 25 years. It was not one day I didn't have a job. So literally the first day I landed, I went out and um, I had a student visa, which allowed me to work a certain number of hours. So I went out and got a uh, a job in a grocery store. And then uh, while I was doing that, because you had to pay for even for those classes, right? For English as second language, you have to pay for those. Nobody would pay you for that or nobody would pay for you to take those classes. So I would kind of pay for, for my education along the way. So worked full time uh, while I went then to college and then same thing for high school. I'm sorry, uh, law school. So when you take an ESL class as an adult, as an immigrant, you, you speak Russian, but the, your classmates were speaking other languages. How does the teacher teach English when that teacher doesn't understand the primary languages of the students? Uh, <laughs> that's one of those things I don't remember. <laughs> I'm fascinated by that, right? I mean, there, how many, there were probably, I don't know, 15, 20, 25 students in that class and there, you were probably the only Russian speaker, maybe, or maybe one of two. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember, you know, it was, um, I guess it was just such an experience that you kind of try to repress because, right, you're, you're going through it and it's painful and you have to learn the new language. I, I remember not wanting to say thank you when people would hold the door for me because I was so afraid that people are going to know that I don't speak the language. So even even the simple thing is to say thank you was painful um, and a lot of kind of internal worry and anxiety. How, how quickly did it take you to feel like you were part of uh, American society? Uh, sometimes I wonder <laughs> if I am. No, I'm joking. Um, uh, I don't know, probably about five or six years because I, I got my citizenship about six years after I came here. Um, and that was a painful experience as well, because you know you have to go through the green card and you wait and you wait and you wait and a ton of paperwork and then you go and you meet with the immigration officer and you know and they they you know ask you questions and you know you don't know what if you don't get the, the citizenship or your you know permanent residency. Um, so that I think maybe that didn't make me feel like I was part of the country or of the society, right? Or the country until I got my citizenship. All right. So how long had you been here before you started college? Oh, I started the college the following year because, and I remember, I remember a discussion with my ex-in-laws at the time when they were saying, well, do you really want to go back to college? Because as a non-resident, even though it's a city school, you'd be paying twice as much. And I kept saying, I don't care, I'll work around the clock so I can continue my education now rather than wait. I didn't know how long my, my permanent residency is gonna take. Um, it could have been three years, could have been five years. So I didn't wanna wait. And so, um, yeah, I think almost immediately about a year after I came here. And were, were you fluent enough in English at the time to understand the classes? Yeah, and I had to take, because again, you pay, you know, your own way. So I had to take maximum amount of credits to make it 
you know, to make it cheaper <laughs> because I remember, I think if 12 credits is, you know, let's say $3,000, but you can take up to 21 credits and it'll still be $3,000, right? Because that's, that's how pricing worked in, in CUNY um, in, in City University of New York. And so I would take up to 21 credits, even though, um, you know, I could have just taken 12, but I wanted to get through college as fast as I could for as little money as I could, because I knew I still had to go for the whole law school. So I think I finished college in two and a half years. I mean, there were some credits that transferred from Moldova, but not many. So I had to kind of take on a lot of credits to finish and graduate um, in, in two and a half years because it costed less money. So you've, you've had to struggle most of your life uh, and you've, you're clearly a very hard worker. If you had been born in the suburbs of, say, D.C., some nice neighborhood where you, ha you had money, you didn't have to worry about food, you didn't have to worry about clothing, do you think you'd be a, a very different person today? Um, probably, and it could have gone one of two ways, right? It's either I would have had a lot a lot um, more solid of a foundation where I could have built on a lot more. And who, who knows, maybe I would have been, you know, running for the president today. I don't know, um, last year. Uh, or, right, it could have gone complete opposite and I would have not been successful at all. It's just, you, you really don't know because I think you are a um, product of your surroundings, but also, uh, you know, some circumstances and, I just knew that for me, you know, you say struggle. Yes, I guess you don't think of it that way when you're in it, right? So I didn't think that I struggled back in Moldova because everybody was like that. And I just knew, okay, well, how do I find the solution? You know, how do I make my life better? Um, then when I immigrated here, to me, this was just a dreamland, you know, there's so many opportunities and God, you have electricity, you have hot water, and that's already, you have food, that's already not struggle. Um, and then if you, you know, if you think, okay, fine, you know, how can I make my life better? And of course, I'll go for that opportunity. And so I'll work harder to, to get there. But that doesn't mean that I'm struggling, if that makes sense. It does. Uh, so let's go back to Moldova. And it sounds like your family uh, did not have a lot of means. Uh, it sounds like people, everybody you knew did not have a lot of means. How did people actually make money or, or, or be able to pay for, for food and clothing? Bes besides the uh, dance teacher, like yeah. when, you, when you were really small, how did your parents make money? So when I was really small, everybody was making you know, whatever the, the government was paying you, right? So that's why there was never a question of like, how much do you make and how much do you make? But I don't know how much you make. Everybody made more or less the same based on your position, right? So my mom was a, a music teacher and she made what every music teacher made in Moldova. My father was, um, he had a, a sales job in a store. And so he was making what the sales clerk was making in the store. And then he was an attorney who kind of went to law school at nights as well. So then he became an attorney and then he kind of made what they made. But there's also a lot of, I mean, I, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to go into ideology here, but there's also, you know, when you do that, you create opportunities for people. And when nobody, when nobody owns anything, everything is owned by the government. You create opportunities for people to, you know, make more. Right. And how do you do that? Either it's bribes so you can get yourself a more cushier job or, you know, it's getting something from, you know, uh, if you're in manufacturing job, you get your friends those extra chickens, you know, or the, you know, a car or, you know, so it's does that make sense? So it's, it's really it's it's kind of equal, but it's not. Yeah. So you either play by the rules and you end up being poor. Uh, and barely making ends meet, or you cheat the system, and that's how you get ahead. Yeah, and you know, I was too little to really understand, or even now sitting here today, know that, that that's what was happening. But I think it was kind of cultural, right, and fabric of, of the culture. Um, but again, I was, I was too little to really comprehend any of that. All I knew was um, going back to kind of being 13, 14 and the Soviet Union collapsing and, and opportunity that that created for people to really become owners of their salaries or of their income. 
Uh, do you go back to Moldova often? Are your parents there? No, uh, my mom moved to the United Kingdom, um, I want to say about 15 years ago, probably even more than that. Uh, and my father passed away. But yeah, so I have not been in a long, long time. No real reason to go back, it sounds like. No. Yeah. Do you, you go to the UK to see your mom a lot? Uh, I haven't been in a while, but yeah, I, I, I've been a few times. She comes, she comes here before pre-pandemic. She'd come here every year. And you say here, you're, you're living in the DC area? I live the, in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's the name of the town? Ashburn. Ashburn. Yes. Ashburn's a, a nice part of the uh, DC metro area, right? Yeah. Not too far from Reston. So we um, are, my company's in the Reston and yeah, I live here in Ashburn. All right. I love the sound of Daniel's voice. So I'm going to stop talking for a while and we can transition a bit to uh, what you do now, uh, Alona, and what, you, uh, and what your company does. Cool. Yeah. And uh, I just, yeah, I, Alona, I'm kind of in awe just hearing the way that you described your whole path uh, and the initiative that you had and the drive. Um, and I had one question about it, which is, uh, was there like a cultural or maybe in your case, like a family emphasis on education? Because the theme that I'm picking up on is that education seems to be really important to you kind of at every stage. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, great question. Um, I don't know. I don't think it was so much the family focus on education. I think I always loved school. I was always good at it. I loved school. Um, so yeah, if you ask my mom, she would say she was a straight C student. <laughs> I was always a straight A student. Um, but yeah, no, I just, I just loved school. That's, yeah, wow. That's <laughs> a good thing to love. It uh, probably bodes well. Um, well, but you know what? I, one thing I was going to mention, uh, which kind of is maybe answering your question in a way, um, what my mom did um, was she introduced me to piano at a very young age. And I sucked at piano. She was a piano teacher. She loved piano. I hated piano and I was really bad at it, but she made me practice over and over and over and over again. And I would practice every single day for hours and hours and hours. I played piano for 10 years. I was always bad at it, but I was good enough to, you know, perform in concerts, um, local concerts with other kids, but, you know, good enough to do that, which gave me two things. Now in retrospect, one is the work ethic. Well, actually three things probably. One is the work ethic. So you would sit there and you practice and you practice and you practice and you sit there for hours to get something out of it. And um, goal setting, because you would have a goal. Um, so those are the transferable skills that I transferred into my life and education. And third is, um, I'm still, I still have fear of public speaking, but I think it would have been worse if I didn't play piano and performed all the time. So the performer in me, um, you know, helps me with, I do a lot of public speaking, so it helps me with public speaking. Wow. That's such a cool uh, little story. I think another thing maybe is that, um, there, you know, people kind of think that people are innately talented or not. And I, to an extent that's true, but also in the case of just grinding for 10 years, anybody in the world can get pretty good at piano. Um, so 10,000 nice. hours, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, 10,000 hours, yeah. Uh, so you're, you're currently general counsel of the Internet Society, which, um, I, I, is it a nonprofit or an NGO? It, it's a nonprofit and it's formed, it was formed about 30 years ago by um, the father of the internet, Windsurf, and a few others um, founding uh, fathers of the internet. And um, uh, they're, they're still engaged with, with our community. But yeah, it's, um, we've been in existence for about 30 years, with essentially from the birth of the internet. Wow. Uh, and, you, and what would you say, like, what? Well, it's what would you say your role is like what, what do you do kind of in a day-to-day -day as general counsel yeah so my role is very similar i think to um andrews uh he, he who you may know um as general counsel we are um we essentially well i say i i, I have two main objectives one is to um, help business grow and achieve in our case achieve our mission um, do it in a compliant way, um, legally compliant way. 
uh, and be an advisor to the business. So minimize the risk. So it's, it's really just being more strategic and business focused, help us grow and achieve our mission in a legally compliant way and minimize our risk of non-compliance. Cool. So as far as the Internet Society's case, like um, they, uh, from what I saw, it seems like there's a sort of a two-pronged uh, goal of growing the Internet across the world for people that don't have it, uh, which is, I was really surprised to learn it's more than half of the population just don't have Internet access. And then to strengthen it so that it's less susceptible to vulnerabilities, fraud, uh, hacks, like that kind of thing. So I guess like, how does the, uh, um, the business strategy slash risk mitigation apply to that sort of kind of uh, like goal or roadmap? Yeah, and thank you for spending some time learning about the Internet Society. Um, I am, I am also um, a big believer in the mission and I've, had not worked for a nonprofit until I joined the Internet Society back in August of last year, so about eight months ago. All my career was in a for-profit organizations, for-profit companies, um, and I and I, I I do see a big difference between working in in for-profit and nonprofit. Um, so I I kind of became a you know diehard fan of our mission and the Internet Society, and yeah, I obviously, you know, spend a lot of time on action plan and, and knowing how what we do support our mission. Um, so I appreciate you looking at, at our, at our um, company and understanding what we do. But yeah, that's a really great summary. Uh, we have internet strong, and we have internet grow. Um, and then there are a number of other initiatives that kind of fall um, somewhere in between. But the the way at the, at the end of the day, it's still a corporation, right? It's still an organization. So what I do is a lot of what I've done in other companies, which is support the organization. So you're straightforward, you know, corporate function, you still have compliance with laws, you still have human resources, and you have, you know, you have a whole bunch of other things that come with just running a business, because at the end of the day, it's still a business. Um, but I also do focus on, and so by doing that, I, I allow my business folks focus on their mission and focus on their initiatives. So if they want to set up a community network in a particular country, I help them figure out how to do it in a compliant way. Um, if they want to, um, if they want to, for example, support a bill um, and lobby, I help them do it. On encryption or um, you know or they want to say something about section 230 I help them do it in a compliant way so it's not only the core of running the business in a compliant way but it also supporting their mission and supporting the work that they do in a compliant way um, a lot of what I've been doing here which I I've always worked in a um, different culture companies right because we are you know, companies are becoming more and more global but this is probably as global as it ever got for me um, because we are in so many different co countries. It could be a day where I work on issues in Ethiopia and that same day on issues in Germany on that same day, you know, in, in on, you know, our Latin America um, and Canada and U.S. And so it's really very diverse. Yeah, that's, um, I imagine trying to, figure out what the compliant way to do things across all these different countries. That's sounds like a hell of a job, but uh, with a lot of cool variety. Um, just to ask sort of an obvious question, uh, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like, why, why do you think, or why does the internet society think that everybody in the world having internet is like a, an important fundamental thing? Um. Well, so I, I don't know if I can answer for the Internet Society. It's a really good question. I think what we do care about is making sure, well, first that, you know, it's the Internet is available for as many people as possible, um, because how can you live in 21st century without Internet? Um, but also that the, the fundamentals of the Internet are not broken by um, different governments or different regulations and rules because at the end of the day it's network of networks and 
you know, we, we are working on making sure um, that um, some country by passing some regulation, um, you know, ends up messing with what's working really well. Um, so it's, it's to your point, right, again, the growth and, this, and the strength of the internet. And so it's, it's making sure that people are connected um, and are giving an opportunity to connect because it's, you know, it's, it's internet is what I think, you know, the water or other infrastructure is for people, right? We need to have it in this day and age. And then also making sure it's not broken. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's, um, yeah, it's, I've, it's been in, in my life and I guess all of our lives for so long now that it's difficult to imagine being without it unless we do some kind of like privileged thing, like go on a meditation retreat for two weeks and like uh, just could totally isolate ourselves from the world. Um, I have a, a so question. Of, <laughs> so yeah. I can't even yeah, imagine doing that. But yeah, do. like for, for me, I, I've, I've had an ongoing battle with social media for a long time now. And now I'm at the point where I don't really have it. And it's really nice, but it still is. Uh, the Internet is still kind of permeating all parts of my life, especially as a software engineer. We, we like to say that we uh, we're just professional Googlers. So, um, yeah, so, so one thing that I've, I've kind of seen or noticed um, is that, especially in like the digital kind of era, um, startups and companies are, are doing things that there aren't really rules written for yet. Um, and, you know, privacy, I noticed that some of your work is around, uh, surrounds privacy. And so there are, there have been like, um, you know, I guess startups that sort of, it's like the wild west to say what we can do this. There aren't any, there aren't any laws against it. They haven't been written on the books yet. And that, that sort of innovation uh, mentality keeps like a lot of startups ahead of the legal frameworks, you know, that aren't in place yet. So I wonder just if you have thoughts on that sort of dynamic between sort of these like fast moving rule breakers and then the slower moving kind of law behind it, especially from your perspective, which is like, you're trying to enable that, you know, rule breaking, quote unquote, but you're also trying to prevent, you know, legal and ethical violations too. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's, that's a really great question. I don't know if I, ooh, sorry. It's a, we, we all have families, I love it, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, there's families, there's a screaming child. <laughs> it's like, somebody's torturing the kid. Um, no, I'm just joking. I think it's because it's bedtime and bedtime is not going well in, the, in this family. Oh, man. Um, so yeah, that's a really great question. I think, you know, I don't know if rule breaking is the right, is the right term. I think it's more of like the rule, the rules haven't been written yet for uh, how fast the technology is, is, is going and moving. Um, and, you know, and privacy is such a complicated, complicated uh, um, area of law because you do have a lot of um, views, especially different cultural views on privacy. And when it, you know, you, you, I, I know it's, it's similar to other areas of laws, but for example, right, um, in, in HR employment, almost all, all countries um, understand, you know, harassment and, you know, and, and certain rules that are kind of cutting across culturally. I think privacy is very different um, in that regard um, because you have countries that respect privacy, especially European countries where, you know, there is a deep-seated kind of worry about the government watching over individuals, right? And so privacy, individual privacy is such a, you know, fundamental right for Europeans. And it goes back to, you know, um, World War II and in and, and, and Germany. Um, and then, you know, you have U.S. that's a little, you know, has a little different approach to privacy. And there isn't that, you know, deep-seated worry about, you know, you know um, watching over an individual. And then you have other countries um, that have very different approach to privacy. And there is zero privacy, individual privacy. So um, it, it's, it's fascinating. Um, but I don't know if, 
if I have any view on kind of just technology moving too fast and then governments kind of taking taking upon themselves to catch up and, and how long it takes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is, uh, that is a really interesting way to put it. And like that's sort of reflected, those cultural differences are reflected by, I know that the GDPR yeah. came out a, a couple of years ago and uh, now a bunch of websites you go to say like, uh, please accept our cookie settings and you actually don't have to, you can decline. Um, and then California as well uh, did the, the CCPA, I think, um, which, is a, which is a similar thing. So yeah, yeah it's a complicated yeah. issue. And there is a Virginia law that's recently passed uh, about a, a two weeks ago or so. So now Virginia has its own privacy laws. Oh, um, I didn't, I, I didn't know I didn't that. Know that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, 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 I may have violated it several times and not known. <laughs> <laughs> there is also speaking of current events, there's uh, this new act that's getting proposed in the Senate called the fourth amendment is not for sale. Um, and I, and briefly it's like, gosh, there's a company called Clearview AI that, that basically scraped lots and lots of images of people from Facebook, Twitter, like public social media that people were uploading their pictures to scraped it, turned it into a facial recognition database and sold it to government agencies. And this is a bill that's basically, it's not outlawing what Clearview AI is doing, but it is outlawing the government's ability to purchase that data. Um, I'm wondering, like, have you, has this been on your radar or do you have any thoughts on that? No, um, hmm, that's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't, I have not been on my radar. Um, I've been so busy with, setting up the legal function at the Internet Society. Um, I'm the first general counsel and first internal counsel for the organization. The organization has relied on the outside counsel for all these years and, and they brought in the function in-house, which I think is very similar to Andrew. And, um, and it's been fun to set that up from scratch. It's my second time doing it. Um, and I've been so focused on that and so busy because when you were dealing with the 30 year history and being so global and getting onboarded and getting onboarded during pandemic. So I, you know, it was, it, it was very challenging. I have not paid yeah. attention to that, but that sounds, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. That's probably one of the examples, right. Where technology, uh, as you call it, rule, rule breaking or rule kind of, you know, walking yeah. the fine line <laughs> and um, the government catching up. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, cool. And yeah, no, I'm not, uh, I, t I totally understand. Like you, I imagine your plate is like more than full with, with all the amazing stuff that, um, that you guys are working on. And it seems like uh, really um, maybe the goal of the Internet Society is a little bit more uh, base level. Like we're just trying to build the infrastructure and get the fundamental stable like security in place so that everybody can use the Internet. And I would consider like data privacy, maybe like a higher order issue that, you know, it doesn't come in unless you have the Internet in the first place. So it's sort of like a first things first thing. Yeah, and you know, uh, we our current CEO um, has done a lot of job within the organization to focus us and the organization on what is our core mission. Because to your point, internet touches everything, and you know, next thing you know, and we've been kind of based on my understanding, we've been going in all different directions because the internet touches everything and it's connected cars and it's AI and it's 5G and it's, you know, this and it's that and it's privacy. And so I know that they've spent the senior executive team and my CEOs have spent a lot of time thinking back to what is the core mission, right? Again, internet is everything, but what is the core mission? And our core mission is the uh, properties of the internet and making sure that those properties are protected um, while also allowing for, you know, or, or uh, enabling connection for, for parts of the world that don't have the connection. But yes, the privacy is kind of that extra layer as is AI, as is, you know, connected, connected world. So um, we are purposely staying within our lane and not expanding to other parts. But I was very engaged in privacy and very interested in privacy 
from my previous jobs. And so, yeah, I have the CIPP, which is the Certification in Privacy. Um, I've stood up a function at another company that was privacy function, but not not here. Nice. Um, cool. So, so I have, uh, I want to do one more question. Um, oh, oh you're then, good. Go, do your one. Yeah. Not, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm running up close on time. So I actually have two, but I'm going to let you choose which one you want to answer, Ilona. <laughs> so the first one is um, you spent a lot of your career in cor- in like corporate companies, uh, big law, like, and, and then you've only recently in this last year pivoted to the nonprofit world. That change, like what inspired it, how that's been. The second one um, is just your, like your status as both an immigrant and a woman uh, reaching these, like, I would consider pretty high levels in, you know, in, in the corporate setting, you know, than your executive levels. Like, have you felt that your immigrant status or, or being a woman has like affected that or has, has uh, changed the way that people have treated you or anything like that? Oh, wow. so what- do, I have, do I have to choose the question? I like them both. <laughs> well, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll answer the first one. And then if we have enough time, I can answer. No, this an, answer bo- go ahead and answer both. Please. So the, fir- the first question about the pivoting to the nonprofit and what attracted me to that before this job, I had a general counsel position at China Telecom Americas, and it's a US subsidiary of China Telecom. Um, and we worked a lot um, on, um, you know, on, on internet security and being a US subsidiary of a Chinese company, um, there was a lot of focus on making sure that we demonstrate um, um, that the, you know, the, the service was secure and that the internet was secure. And so in connection uh, with that job, I learned about the Internet Society because the Internet Society has this this um, initiative called Manners, and Manners is essentially um, a, um, a observatory and has observatory for ISPs and cloud providers and others that are, that are participants in that initiatives in seeing kind of the health of an ISP and the internet security. And so um, not going to go into too much detail, but the company China Telecom and China Telecom America spent a lot of time um, on making sure that it, it reaches that point where it can become the manners participant. And so in doing that work, I learned about the internet society and I just thought it was so cool to have this entity that did all that work and allowed for that kind of, you know, very country agnostic and, you know, entity agnostic way um, for, you know, for really focused on technology. And the more I learned about the internet society, the more interested I became in the company. And then the position opened up and I applied thinking there's no way I'm going to get a job because I don't have any experience with nonprofits. And um, I think I um, did well enough in the interviews where they were interested in, enough in me in, in offering me the job. Um, and so I, I've had a fantastic experience here and really learning about the organization, really seeing how the mission can, you know, really affect people and, and companies. So that's answer to first one. Um, answer to the second one. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, um, you know, I, 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 I've never had anybody ask me that question. So it's, it's a really good question. I think people kind of assumed that being an immigrant and being a woman that maybe there were, you know, there were things that have not gone my way. Um, so nobody really asked me that question. Um, and to be honest with you, I really don't think I ever focused on it. Meaning, I don't think I've ever dwelt. There were plenty of uh, jobs that I applied for that I didn't get. Um, were there opportunities for advancement within certain companies that I might not have gotten, you know, that, that I had but did not get because I was a woman or an immigrant? Maybe. I don't know. Um, because I don't think I ever dwelled on it or I used that as an excuse to say to myself, well, you know, I didn't get it because I'm a woman or I didn't get it because I'm an immigrant. Um, I always thought to myself that, well, people will not give me the job or they will not advance me because of my accent, right? I'm still very, very, very mindful of my accent. And I feel like people right away know I'm not from here, right? So I think I put that pressure on myself and then I surprise myself when I get a job or I surprise myself when I get the opportunity. Um, 
So I don't know if that answers your question, but um, I think, you know, if I didn't get a certain opportunity or I didn't get the advanced, uh, the advancement be that because of my status or because of my immigration status or because of, I'm a woman, it's their loss. So there you go. That is an, that's the best answer possible. I love it. <laughs> so you mentioned manners. Is manners uh, a governing body or is it more of a, a certification sort of process? Yeah, so, so um, it's an initiative within the Internet Society and it's self-governing. So you have a collection of ISPs uh, and companies that are very interested in making sure that they meet certain standards to be admitted into right into this um, kind of self-governing body. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't have, it's not, it's not a certification. It doesn't have um, any um, stamp of approval. It's more of, um, well, these are the standards that you need to meet to show the world that your connections are secure, that your BGP um, routing is you know, secure. Um, because BGP is, is, as you may know, is, you know, a lot of it is, or could be human error. Um, so that's, that's what it is. Got it. So when I was pointing at myself earlier, and sorry for being obnoxious about that, uh, if, when you, when you're trying to grow and strengthen the internet, say in a place like Ethiopia, you're dealing with Ethiopian laws. You're also dealing with American laws because you're, the internet society is, is, is based here. I'm assuming it's based here. Mm -hmm. So you're dealing with American laws. Yes. Uh, are, are there any other laws at play in, in my Ethiopia example? Um, so we always have to comply with the U.S. laws because, as you mentioned, we are a U.S. nonprofit. So that's our baseline. You know, we, we have to comply with all U.S. laws. If there's a certain initiative in a certain country or you have employees in that country, or you have, you know, you're putting up a, a webinar or whatever, whatever it is, right? And, and there's certain implication of laws in that particular region, you also have to do your research and make sure that you apply with that region's laws as well. Okay, got it. And so uh, you have a giant clock behind you in your background today. So it's, it's giving, it's, wonderful because it lets me know what time it is. And we had talked about doing this for roughly an hour. So I guess the last thing I would love for you to talk about is uh, your family today. So can I, since you've mentioned the clock, uh, I have to tell you a funny story about the <laughs> clock and then I will, I will tell you about my family. So the clock is an interesting story and, and it, it makes it for a nice icebreaker when people ask, well, is this a, um, you know, the virtual background is a real clock. It is a real clock. And I, as you know, we all been working from home and I've been working from home for a number of months in the basement before I realized, well, this is not going anywhere. So I have to have a little office because, you know, it's, I'll be here 10, 12, 14 hour days. So we had a spare bedroom and I said, I don't have the time or the ability or really, you know, the desire to decorate this room. So I, I hired this lady and I said, listen, I only have one, one requirement. I need a clock and the clock needs to be quiet. The reason why I assumed that she would have understood what kind of clock I need was because I'm constantly running late for conference calls. And so it would have been great to have a little clock that I can see instead of being obnoxious looking at the clock on, on the screen. So I can have a little clock to see what time it is so I can tell people, hey, I'm running late for the next call. So she did this reveal, right? She opened the door, ta-da, and I have a clock. <laughs> the clock is, is huge and it's behind me, and so I have no idea what time it is. It is quiet. It is quiet, I have to say. But then I thought, well, maybe she's being passive-aggressive on my behalf, because as you said, then you can see what time it is, and you would know that you ate way too much of my time. Uh, I'm only joking, but it's... I, I'm not picking up on passive-aggressive a lot. <laughs> Um, so my family, my family is um, married. I have two kids, both, both boys. I say I'm always mentally and physically exhausted because I have a 21 year old who keeps me mentally exhausted. And I have a six year old about to be seven who keeps me physically exhausted. Um, and that's my family. And then I have my mom who lives in, in UK. Very cool. Well, Alona, I, I love your accent. Uh, <laughs> you should not worry about your accent at all. It's a fantastic accent accent and you have a fantastic story and I'm very appreciative uh, for you joining us tonight and uh, I'm really glad I know Andrew because Andrew knows a lot of really cool people. Well and I appreciate you giving me the the time and and asking me some really great questions if anything it gave me the 
opportunity to reflect back and and really connect a lot of dots and thank you for being prepared and asking me some great questions and taking an interest because I think what you do is kind of really cool you you take the time out of your lives to learn about other people and hopefully um, others will listen and yeah that's it's great I, I thank you so much for that sharing that sentiment uh, we really do enjoy learning a lot of people's stories and yours is certainly uh, one of the more fascinating we've we've learned thank so you. thank yep. you you want Definitely to stop recording? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.